Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting October 4th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, Science and the Law. Starting on October 5th in Chicago, judges and lawyers from around the country will attend four days of science training, getting up to speed on some important current issues in biology, bioengineering, and medicine. The sessions are organized by a group called the Advanced Science and Technology Adjudication Resource, or ASTAR. Franklin Zweig is ASTAR's president, and Robert Bell, the chief judge of the Court of Appeals of Maryland, is one of ASTAR's directors. The three of us recently shared a conference call. We'll also talk about eating like an animal in the Ask a Scientist segment, plus we'll share some listener mail. First up, Franklin Zweig and Chief Judge Robert Bell. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Steve. Uh, This is an unusual opportunity to join uh, science and law. Dr. Zweig, tell me about ASTAR. What is it? What's the purpose of it? And give me a little of the history. I know there's some kind of relationship to the Human Genome Project. Yeah, ASTAR is a child of the Human Genome Project in some ways. Uh, our predecessor nonprofit provided uh, eight years of education for judges in the science and ethical and legal issues related to uh, uh, the Human Genome Project. And th- there was a congressional mandate for that kind of training? Yes, there was. Congress, in approving uh, the Human Genome Project, required a percentage set aside of research funds to educate the relevant uh, communities uh, who might uh, be affected by uh, new developments in uh, genetics and genomics. Well, some rare foresight on the, on the part of Congress there. Uh, can, you, can you tell me uh, more about the organization? What is its current uh, charter? What's its current mission? Uh, uh, ASTAR is a not-for-profit. Uh, the board of directors is principally uh, comprised of judges and a few scientists who were very active in the uh, genome-related work and who asked the question, when the Human Genome Project completed, and our work uh, was done as well, what would be the next step we wanted to uh bring to unite science and justice? And the answer was uh, that more judges had to have a longer uh, connection with uh, scientific information in order to equip or enhance the capacity of their jurisdictions on new evidence, uh, new experts, uh, causation, and the related issues to those legal matters. The, the uh, training that we provide is uh, far more general than uh, any judge is likely to reach about a, a conclusion about something that occurs directly at trial. Uh, for example, uh, most of our judges haven't had uh, an exposure to science uh, since either their high school or early college days. Science has changed in, in the approximately 30 years uh, elapsed uh, since then, and now that most judges are on the bench, uh, they have to be to shed a certain amount of, uh, of uh, phobia about science in order to develop the underlying concepts and disciplinary perspectives 
that constitute modern science, which has itself uh, undergone revolutions uh, several times in that period of time. Are you using uh, science phobia just metaphorically? Um, I, I, I'll, I'll give you my, my homemade definition. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a certain averseness uh, that comes to many judges who found science either repelling, sometimes due to bad instruction, uh, or not competitive with their interests. Uh, but when you add that to... Uh, to uh, novelty and probability statistics. <laughs> right, uh, statistics you, will do you, it. You get phobia. Chief Judge Bell, I know that uh, in Maryland there's a specific, what you call a, a business and technology court. What we've done is to not make it a court as much as a uh, part of our case management system. It is a case management program. The point is to train judges to be able to handle these complex business uh, and technology cases, cases involving uh, complex business issues or and or technology, uh, using technology or involving technological advances. Uh, we try to uh, not only have judges who are able to try those cases, but who are able to mediate or in some other way resolve those cases. And what we've done is to designate judges in each circuit uh, as business and technology judges and then provide them with the requisite training as to enable them to be able not only to recognize the cases when they come in, but then to handle them. And to the extent that there is a need to do so to consult with other judges in the state and in their particular circuit concerning such issues. Can you give me a specific case, other than the Kitzmiller case, which has gotten a lot of attention, where this kind of specialized background in science really made a difference in the case? A a lot of cases uh, have pivoted on issues of causation. Uh, Is it reasonable to, uh, or is it plausible and reasonable to conclude that a certain set of antecedent factors led up to some kind of bad event or adverse uh, event. Uh, and uh, there are a whole series of cases in the DES litigation, one of them having to do with uh, uh, the uh, possible uh, teratogenic uh, effect of the uh, of medication to calm nausea during pregnancy uh, led to a decision uh, in Dalbert versus Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals that created a sea change uh, in judicial roles uh, where huge uh, differentials occurred between courts who concluded uh, that uh, bendectin was a causative factor to birth defects, and lots of courts that concluded otherwise. And what happened when the Supreme Court took up that case was to lay a procedural foundation for regularizing the judicial role in considering novel complex evidence. Before that, the judge merely had to determine whether one or more 
uh, relevant disciplines, accepted the science proffered at trial. But what Daubert did was to say the judge has a duty to safeguard the fitness of the evidence. And that has changed the way that both the Daubert jurisdictions and what are called the Fry jurisdictions, the two main lines of evidence law in the United States, both of them hold that the judge is a gatekeeper. There are different nuances and emphases in these uh, in these different uh, evidence law packages, but they all require the judge to be the gatekeeper of the evidence. Well, that's that's sort of a massively new responsibility. It is, and and it's a daunting one. Uh, and well, in the Supreme Court case, then Chief Justice Rehnquist uh, dissented, uh, saying. Uh, the formulation would require uh, judges to become armchair scientists. Uh, I'm not sure that experience has borne that out, that judges need to be armchair scientists, but certainly judges in uh, novel complex cases should be scientifically literate, able to bring their background to the qualification of experts, uh, and the determination of expert testimony. Where are we going? What are things going to be like 10 years from now when, when there's so much more technical material that, that the legal system is going to have to process? There'll be virtually no case without uh, long lines of expert witnesses on both sides or in huge cases with uh, interveners, uh, lots and lots of uh, experts uh, uh, arguing over uh, whether a nanoparticle is toxic, for example. Right. Uh, and the more nanoparticles uh, uh, get generated and are placed into commerce, the more opportunity there is for uh, legal contests over the fate and, uh, and uh, means of action of those particles. Uh, that gives opportunity for all sorts of causes, controversies, cases uh, that uh, I think we will find come up into court uh, and which also will haul in uh, ethical uh, issues such as should certain substances by their very nature be uh, prohibited from production or should there be scientific norms uh, as well as uh, laws that uh, structure what happens with new materials uh, new entities and uh, very. Uh, uh, your Scientific American had an elegant article on engineering life in this past June. Mm -hmm. uh, the merger of biological and electrical circuits. These issues will come into court. Well, gentlemen, I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to uh, come back in a few years and see where things have gone. And I, I greatly appreciate your, your being available today. It's a fascinating subject, the intersection of science and law, and, and I thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you, sir. For more information about ASTAR, go to www.einshack.org. That's E-I-N-S-H-A-C.org. Because ASTAR is an offshoot of the Einstein Institute for Science, Health, and the Courts. ASTAR boot camps in life sciences are scheduled for November in White Plains, New York, and for December in Seattle. 
Tired of searching the internet in a vain attempt to answer your science question? Well, now you can ask a scientist. Peter Dulamoff, a computer programmer in Sydney, Australia, wants to know... Why is it that human beings are the only animals that need to cook their meat? I mean, uh, if you think about it, a fox can eat a chicken, right? It doesn't have to cook the chicken, and yet if I eat a chicken that's raw, I get sick. Uh, hyenas eat stuff that I get sick just looking at. What's going on there? To find out, I called Peter Kelly, senior veterinarian with the Wildlife Conservation Society at the Wildlife Health Center at the Bronx Zoo. It's an interesting question, a complicated answer. Uh, the first part of it, of course, is people can and do eat raw food, certainly raw fruits and vegetables, but also raw meat. If you go to a fine French restaurant and order steak tartare, that's actually raw meat, or you go to a sushi bar and eat raw fish. Um, and so people, if it's good quality raw food, people can eat it and not get sick. And kind of the converse is, um, while wild animals certainly do eat raw foods, um, sometimes they do get sick. And it's in both cases, people and wild animals, it's really a question of uh, the quality of what is eaten. Um, wild animals generally prey upon, you know, predators prey upon live animals, and so that meat is very fresh. Most of the raw products that people get sick from, um, it, they get sick as a result of food contamination or bacterial or viral contamination or growth in the food. And so, you know, eating fresh, good quality meat, fish, fruits and vegetables, either people or animals can eat safely, and both people and animals eating poor quality or contaminated or infected food, uh, they can get sick. Are there any really interesting or unusual mechanisms that some species have to protect them, like the, the carrion eaters, like vultures? Yeah, certainly car, um, scavengers uh, that eat older dead prey are more resistant to these things and they have evolved to exploit that food resource and they have adaptations and adjustments in the gastrointestinal flora and absorption and tolerance to different things so that they are more resistant. And there are, however, lots of instances, especially of infectious diseases, of wild animals eating uh, an infected, even you know, live prey animal and getting sick. Uh, avian influenza certainly domestic and wild cats that eat birds that have died of avian influenza have gotten sick and died from the avian influenza. Certainly um, in our country, raptors eating birds that have died, raptors meaning birds of prey, hawks, eagles, and owls that have eaten um, uh, animals that have died of West Nile virus can get infected and die from West Nile virus. I mean, one of the one of the instances is uh, happening right now with this E. coli strain that's uh, sickened and actually killed people. Um, if something like that happens in the animal world, it's not necessarily a big news story. So that might uh, contribute well, to this concept. Not necessarily a big news story, and a lot of the big outbreaks that happen in people are a result of the mass production of food and the high crowding and the genetic inbreeding for particular breeds of livestock and the mass production. And so if you get an infected batch of meat that's mixed with a large volume, you can uh, impact lots and lots of people. Whereas 
you know, one animal eating one infected meal. If that animal is sickened and died, it's not noticed. I got you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Kelly. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. So that was an actual Ask a Scientist feature. Uh, I also wanted to share with you um, questions that that we've received uh, from our listeners, which are not necessarily um, appropriate for the Ask a Scientist feature, but are still very interesting. And, and I have a, a collection of them here. And I also am joined by John Rennie, the editor-in-chief of Scientific American. Hello, Steve. Now, we uh, we have never met, isn't that right? I, I don't like to mix with you little <laughs> wage apes from Sector 7 very often, so. So, uh, actually, we've, we've met many times. However, you have not seen these questions. No, I have not. I, I would prefer not to know what these questions might be. We begin. John, what exactly is the nature of silence? Ding! You're absolutely correct. We'll move along. Uh, Can the thoughts of the deceased be transmitted or received by the living? (laughs) Uh, Not by most of the living. Um, but there is a, a, a guy who works at a coffee shop in Toledo, who is, as far as we know, the only person who is a conduit between this world and the afterlife. And uh, as far as we can determine in the next life, what people mostly want are uh, eggs over easy on wheat toast. And we move along. How do I become a scientist and have scientists reasoning? Well, I've always believed that if you want to become a scientist, you should go to scientist school. What is the name of the product if I mix ethanol with cyclohexane, and what precautions should I take before doing the experiment? (laughs) (laughs) This may be the world's worst bartender who's writing in today. Uh, Let's see. Oh, and and there's a follow-up. How should I dispose of the residue? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I have an uncle who might drink it. What is scientific about effect, advantage, resistance, and level? This question was on my SATs, I think. Um, how can I optimize my thinking capacity? Think every day? At with, least once a day. Yes, whether you want to or not. Is it possible to sleep and not rest your mind and body? So many people on our staff suggest the answer is yes. No question. Absolutely. Question from listener. Will there really be hotels on the moon in 50 years? Well, maybe there will be. I will not be booking ahead. There's one thing to do on the moon is look at the Earth and wonder just how fast you can get back to it. (laughs) The Earth looks so big tonight. What is the purpose of life and what is the purpose of a human being? Well, the purpose of a human being... Uh, is actually something of a of a service to the rest of nature. The the human being makes the ape look dignified, makes the hyena look merciful, makes the shark look restrained. Thank you. Um, a wild horse starts from rest and runs in a straight line 29 degrees north of west. After 32 seconds of running in this direction, the horse has a speed of 10 meters per second. What is the magnitude of the horse's average acceleration in meters per second squared? Kid, you've got to learn to do your own physics homework in this life. Okay, question from a listener. I believe there is a special edition Scientific American just published on energy, climate change, and innovative technical solutions. How can I purchase this issue? Strangely enough, uh, there is such an issue. Uh, Our September 2006 issue, uh, Energy's Future Beyond Carbon. I imagine you could go to the Scientific American website, 
www.siam.com, and uh, I imagine we could arrange for you to buy an issue that way. And, of course, you can access the entire issue digitally from the website. That's right. For a small fee. Well, John, thank you very much for uh, helping to answer our, our listener mail, and we'll see you next time. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. Our email address is podcast.siam.com. Don't you forget, Science News is updated daily at www.siam.com. Lots of coverage there and at our blog of the Nobel Prizes being awarded this week. The blog is blog.siam.com. And you can get your short daily podcast dose with 60 Second Science on our website and over at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 